This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora koutou. I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to the first Insight for 2019. This week, are our rural first responders being stretched too far? Demands on rural emergency services are on the rise, with firefighters responding to more medical call-outs than ever before. GPs are facing long hours on call and precarious funding. Tess Brunton investigates whether services are coping with the increasing demand and if they can survive. So that's the page you're going... And that alerts us, and it also alerts us on our phones. And so we can read on our phones where it is. And like, so if I go back to, there's one on Cameron Street, all I need to do is push on that, and it'll go over to Google Map and tell me exactly where to go. If it goes to a purple, we would know the St John's are turned out and prime. And it's always good to see prime there because, you know, they're the experts. And sometimes the ambulance can be away, and we're trained up in first aid, but we're not first response. The Chief Fire Officer in the South Canterbury town of Waimate, Duncan Lyle, explains how the system works that alerts rural services to an emergency. He's been volunteering at the station for more than 50 years. In the old days we didn't have gear and it was funded by the councils and so funding was very tight, you know what I mean? In time when the new Fire Service Act came in and and then things changed and um, it's gradually got better and better all the time. Nowadays, if you call 111 for a heart attack, you're just as likely to see a fire engine arrive as an ambulance. That's one of the big changes from 2014, when the fire service and St John signed a memorandum of understanding to guide how the services work together. It means more call-outs across the country as firefighters now respond to purple calls, where people's lives are immediately threatened and help lift and extract patients. Fire trucks are equipped with defibrillators and medical kits so they can provide first aid support as soon as they arrive. But that's only one part of their role, as he explained on a tour of the station. And yes, it's true, firefighters only have minutes to get ready and out the door. Um, they expect us to be out the door within five minutes and if we don't respond within five minutes they'll send another brigade. So it's all automatic, so you've got to be out the door. We're usually out in about two, two and a half minutes. So this is, like, this is all our cutting equipment here. That there, that's the cutter here. Yeah. Bloody heavy. <laughs> and that one there's a spreader. It'll grab and also push out, and it all runs with hydraulic hoses. Mr Lyle says the station is fortunate to be well supported by volunteers and nearby stations. There's a station located less than 20 minutes' drive away. Last financial year, fire and emergency figures show there were more than 11,000 volunteers serving in smaller and rural communities. Rural firefighters responded to more than 1,000 fires and 364 vehicle crashes and 699 medical emergencies during the same period. While Glory can attract some to sign up, he says it's a big commitment of time, energy and can come at a personal cost. Sometimes you might drive down the main road or drive somewhere and you think, oh, there's been a crash here and a crash here, and in the end you stop thinking about it because it, it can affect you. But it's good, you know, we go to a place and put a fire out and save things and help people out, so that's what we're here for. It's all about life, really. His team works closely with Dr Sarah Cregan, the local doctor and prime emergency practitioner. She remembers a remarkable rescue on a bitterly cold night. 
during a period when we had snow and flooding, a car had gone off a bridge, a little bridge that normally only has a little trickle of water under it. It was a raging torrent and the car flipped and ended up upside down in a raging torrent which was freezing cold at night and the women in the car managed to invert themselves and breathe in the floor space of the car and were tapping the brake lights. An off-duty firefighter noticed the strange flashing and sounded the alarm. I got there at the point when they were just pulling the first person out, so they'd got the jaws of life, they had the fire guys ended up having to fully immerse themselves in their full kit in the raging frozen torrent and then crack this car open without dislodging it and sending it further off downstream in the raging torrent and then pull the two people inside out. And I got there and thought, there's no way, they will definitely be dead. They'll be hypothermic, drowned both. And they weren't. Dr Cregan says both women emerged cold but well when the odds were not in their favour. Her medical centre is just down the road from the station, past the historic silos marked with murals and a statue of Margaret Cruikshank, the first woman to become a registered doctor in New Zealand. She's owned the Waimati Medical Centre since 2009 when she decided to provide prime or primary responders in medical emergencies. For people in rural areas, the service is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week lifeline, providing timely access to trained medical professionals when lives are threatened. We're standing in an office in her newly built medical practice. On the walls are photos from around the Waimati district. But often Dr Cregan is home when she receives an alert. Thunderbirds are go. Why do you have Thunderbirds are go as your prime message tone? Well, it's different to the other message tones, so I know I have to jump. But it also gives me a little tiny injection of humour into chaos that's just entered my day. Set up in 1999 in the South Island, Prime was rolled out nationally the following year. The then Health Minister Wyatt Creech says New Zealanders want to know that when they have an accident or a medical emergency, they'll receive the right care, at the right time, in the right place, delivered by the right person. Dr Cregan says Prime is running on goodwill, but that can't sustain the service into the future. It's not making any problems or noises, and so unfortunately I don't think that the message is particularly going out because it's going along fine, what's to worry about? Once it stops, the problem with that is I don't know that people will go back to it because I think as soon as you stop doing the on-call work, you realise that actually your life is enhanced by not being on-call anymore. And so going back to it would be a really big thing. So if it dies, I think that will be permanent. Dr Cregan says doctors and nurses are often doing prime out of the love for their communities. At her practice, there are three people to cover on-call shifts, they're 24-7 and sometimes, she says, there are gaps. While it's rewarding, Dr Cregan says long, tiring hours on call and stressful situations make it a challenge. Pretty ugly when you're pulling the just perfectly cooked turkey out of the oven, um, ready to serve to your family because I'm Mother Christmas, and you get the pager and off you go and someone's collapsing and vomiting and... You know, it's all pretty awful, so then you get back and the turkey's not quite at its prime anymore and you've got to put all that vomit off to one side in your head and have a shower and put your Mother Christmas hat back on. 
Dr Cregan says people don't realise that not every medical practice will go to crashes or on after-hour call-outs. In Waimati, there are about 120 call-outs per year, which are usually medical calls for an ageing population. Her prime service doesn't get paid for individual medical call-outs and they don't get ACC if they respond to a call-out and arrive to find no injuries. Instead, she gets a monthly retainer, but Dr Cregan says it's not enough to cover all the costs, so her practice foots the bill instead. People assume if you call 111, you're going to get someone, you're going to get someone there pretty quickly. But because of our population density in New Zealand, that has and always will be a challenge because I know the systems that there are parts of the country that I drive in that I need to be really particular about what I'm doing and how I take care because I know I'm going to be waiting a long time if something bad happens. But a lot of people just happily drive along and they don't realise. But what impact does it have on the family of first responders? Dr Cregan's daughter, Anna Hume, a second-year house surgeon in Christchurch, says having a mother in emergency services inspired her onto her career path. One that really, really vividly stands out is my 16th birthday. And that we'd been buzzing around, busy all day, and we're going to have a family dinner. So it was myself, my dad and my brother. And just as dinner lands on the table, her phone goes off and both of my parents run out the door because there's been a major crash just down the road and they're going to be first on scene. And they had to be there. Mum wasn't on call, but someone had died and there was someone very injured as well. And so... They needed her. Despite this, Dr Hume says she's considering whether to enter rural medicine. While Prime has been on her radar for years, she says many people don't realise the service exists or how it fills a gap in the healthcare system in rural areas. One of the big things that isn't recognised is that their cars look like normal people's cars. They're not in ambulances, they're not in fire trucks, they're in normal people's cars and they've got green lights and they look different and so get out of the way. They're on their way to help your nan, your cousin, your uncle, whoever. They're on their way to provide them with pain relief and potentially save their life. The other thing to know is that they have lives too and that they're busy and they have jobs and they drop everything and they run and they're there when you need them. She hopes there will be more recognition for the hard work. I don't think people realise how much support and effort and training and generosity that people doing Prime actually provide their community with. And I think it's really undervalued until you need it and you don't ever want to need it, but our rural communities wouldn't be able to survive without it. Dr Tim Malloy has been a Prime practitioner based out of Wellsford, Auckland's northernmost town for more than two decades. Sadly, my greatest recalls are primarily those related to some of the motor vehicle accidents that I've been to. And I, to this day, am stunned by the horror of some of these events. Attending accidents where people are dismembered, mutilated, is a pretty traumatic experience that you never get good at. You only get to tolerate. Three years ago, Dr Malloy saw how the system worked from a patient's perspective. A quad bike crash on his Puhoi farm left him with fractured ribs, collapsed lungs, renal failure and burns to his abdomen. One of the first responders was an ambulance officer he worked with for Prime. Judy came up to me and said, G'day Tim, while I lay trapped underneath a quad bike. And I must say it was incredibly reassuring having somebody who you know, somebody who's local, attending to you. 
He says the crash reinforced his understanding of the value of rural first responders and the need to support them properly. If we don't resource the service adequately, then a component of it is going to simply say enough. And the reality is that then the service will fall back on the fire brigade and the ambulance officers alone. There are 80 prime services around the country, some of which have up to five practitioners, others have only one. Each year, the prime service is allocated about $1.2 million out of the budget. But New Zealand Rural General Practice Network's Chief Executive Dalton Kelly says the government should dig deeper into its coffers to support prime practitioners. You know, that's something close to 400 uh, practitioners on call delivering emergency services for $1.2 million. Look, if you gave them $5 million just to get momentum going, that would be incredibly good value for some of the health dollars. Mr Kelly says staff shortages in rural medical practices only exacerbates the issue further. We know uh, from our 200 rural practices around the country at the moment that there is something like 50 general practice positions we're trying to fill. So a quarter of all rural practices are looking for a GP. We know the numbers are the same for nurses, and we just have to work out how we're going to address that. And the demands of uh, emergency services, prime, it really adds to the uh, complexity of that whole issue. But there was one catch. Any changes were restricted to the existing funding on offer. Funding paid to prime providers increased by $100,000 between the 2011-12 and 2016-17 financial years. Prime providers believe demand for services is outstripping the funding and those claims are backed up by the figures. A final review was sent to the government in May two years ago with more than 190 recommendations from a steering group. The Ministry of Health's Community and Ambulance Manager, Andrew Inder, says a national prime committee was set up last year to work through the recommendations. The prime committee now has a responsibility to drive through the improvements that have been identified. St John also have a key role to play because, you know, as the populations change around New Zealand, we need to be looking at where we need new prime services to ensure that our remote and rural communities get the care that they need. And where we've got a significant growth, we need to be looking and working with St John to see where we've got high volume prime sites that might be better served by having a road ambulance in place. So I expect St John and the Prime Committee to work much more collaboratively together and with their local DHB partners to ensure that they're planning for and managing those changes. Two years ago, the government announced more than $100 million in additional funding to double the crew of all emergency ambulances. At the time, St John said it would provide rural New Zealand with the same crewing levels as urban areas by recruiting 430 frontline jobs over four years. St John planned to introduce more than 18 new volunteer crewed first responders units in rural areas during the same period. Last year, St John figures show emergency ambulance services, which includes Prime, attended more than 3,700 incidents. It was roughly a 1% drop from the previous year. But the call-out trend is on the rise overall. He says the ministry hasn't ruled out additional funding. One of the key areas uh, that have made changes on already is around the type of call prime responders are asked to respond to, and that's managed through St John's National 111 service. 
And so we've seen with a much better triage function being put in place by St. John, quite a significant drop in the number of calls prime providers are asked to respond to over the 2018 year. And it's improvements like that that we want to drive through first before we talk about additional funding. I'm driving through the hills of central Otago towards Alexandra. While Dunstan Hospital is a short drive away from the town, it doesn't offer an accident and emergency service. The closest emergency department is more than an hour away in Queenstown, along a winding and often busy road. And it's not unheard of for people to be transferred or directly transported to Dunedin Hospital, more than two and a half hours away. In the surrounding communities, rural emergency services are vital first responders in times of need. The year that we had the big fires in Central in 1999, when we had fire engines racing all around the district trying to sort things out, we had people that were way out of town coming back to town. We sent people out of town for two days. We'd never seen them. They were away fighting fires. So that's probably the most memorable one. Um, Firefighting runs in the family for Central Otago District Deputy Mayor Neil Gillespie. His father was a member of the Cromwell Volunteer Fire Brigade, the same brigade Mr Gillespie joined about 25 years ago. He says Cromwell firefighters are attending more crashes and medical call-outs than when he first started. When he joined, there were about 39 calls a year. Last year, there were 149. But their technology, training and equipment has received a welcomed upgrade. The resources we have available to us as a volunteer brigade has improved significantly. A lot of it happened because we raised funds ourselves and, and cut ourselves out to do it and a lot of it also because the, the organisation provides it. And now, you know, with a fire engine, most of them we carry defibrillators, we've got first aid kits, we've got oxygen, so we're in a situation where we can go and give first aid. In effect, that's what we do. And we may be there before an ambulance, we may get there after an ambulance, but we can work together with the St John's crew to help whoever's in need of a help, help them out and hopefully get them better. Central Otago is one of the driest areas in the country with the associated risk for fires but it's also an area that is popular with visitors over the summer. We're getting a lot more people um, in our areas, holidaymakers, so that adds to that risk of the vegetation fires in particular. Unfortunately, it probably also adds to the risk of motor vehicle situations with all the traffic on the road, so they are all big risk factors. But yeah, it is a challenging time of the year, but equally we go to winter and you get other challenges with the frost, the snow and the ice and those sort of things. I suppose the other biggest thing is out there is the unknown because you don't know when that siren is going to go next and what it's going to be for. Nestled next to one of New Zealand's largest hydroelectric dams is the small town of Clyde. It's just up the road from Alexandra, home to a rich gold mining history, and Central Otago District Mayor Tim Cadogan. When the alarm goes off at two in the morning, because the town I live in, Clyde, we have a very loud alarm and it wakes you up, and I roll over and go back to sleep with a thought of, gosh, I hope everyone's all right, I wonder who that is. I'm not jumping out of bed at a minus nine degree frost heading out to goodness knows what, and that's what makes me always think, particularly for the, well, any of these first responders, that's what they're doing, and that takes a lot out of your life, it takes a lot away from your family, a lot of your family time is impacted by that, it's a lot of personal sacrifice that these people give for our communities, and I'm sure our communities are very grateful for that. He says the district would be a lot more dangerous without first responders. Well, it's an absolutely fundamental role. We couldn't exist safely without them. We have a lot of accidents and a lot of call-outs, the, the number of times that these people have to get involved. And it's not just the firefighters themselves or the first responders, it's their employers that pay a sacrifice as well in terms of, hey, they're gone. But constantly we hear the sirens go, we hear the people going out, and they're fundamental to our community's existence. He says having first responders in after-hours care is vital to cater for the ageing population. Mr Cadogan says their support helps to keep people in their homes. 
it means the security for the people in their home that they know if something goes wrong, and let's be honest, when you get older, the chances of a fall or a health incident are higher. When something goes wrong, there's going to be somebody there to look after you. Uh, the ability to stay in the small communities, if that service isn't there, has to be affected. Driving further inland is Wanaka, a popular tourist town that is a haven for outdoor enthusiasts. It's a Tuesday evening, but restaurants are still doing a roaring summer trade. On the other side of town, a prime nurse practitioner, Kate Stark, has just started her on-call shift. Today she's based out of the Wanaka Medical Centre, but usually she stays at her home, waiting for an alert. So our page has just gone off, so what we would generally do once um, the page has gone off is that we would look on our screen to see what kind of call we were going to, and we do have a responsibility to ring um, St John Communication as soon as we can to find out the details of the prime job that we're going on. I usually keep the emergency gear in my car when I'm on call so that I can respond from anywhere. And so we get an address that we need to attend, the details of the patient, and then we make our way as safely as we can to the scene. Ms Stark has been involved with Prime for 13 years in Tapanui, Roxburgh, Twizel, and most recently in Wanaka. She lives and works in Gore in Southland, but travels more than two and a half hours to provide Prime support in the tourist centre. Gore doesn't have Prime. Her usual on-call shift is from 6pm until 9am across a Friday, Saturday and Sunday and links in with the after-hours care at the town's medical centres. If there's a medical or trauma emergency during that time, she's expected to drop what she is doing and go. She says Wanaka's prime service doesn't really experience much of a quiet season with outdoor pursuits, vehicle crashes and falls. So we do carry quite a lot of gear. As you can see, some of it is about safety. So we have the magnets on the car, which identify us as prime responders in the community. Um, we have a St John fluorescent jacket that we wear, especially if we're on the roadside. So these are um, health and safety things that have been issued by St John for our safety. Um, we also have a bag that has other safety equipment. So this bag here has got um, a helmet a safety helmet so in another yellow jacket and gloves and goggles so that if we are at an accident scene and there's blood or body fluids around it keeps us safe. The closest hospital Wanaka's prime service sends people to is Dunstan Hospital which has no emergency department and is about an hour away from the town. For serious cases, patients are often sent to Dunedin Hospital via ambulance or rescue helicopter. Ms Stark says hospital emergency departments would also bear the brunt of any service cuts, becoming more overloaded. But funding remains the elephant in the room. The needs have grown in terms of you know, influx of population over the years, but the service hasn't grown with it. We often don't have enough ambulances in the area, and then if we do send an ambulance away to a hospital with a patient, we are then responsible for the area ourselves. So it is stressful, it is tiring, and managing fatigue is a huge challenge. She says services will consider closing their doors if they don't get more support soon, which would have dire consequences. Basically, people would die. I mean, we see, you know, lots of cases where we've made a difference in life-threatening circumstances and without the ability to respond to those accidents and medical events after hours with the Prime service, people would die. Without Prime, she says patients would wait longer and travel further for care as emergency services from other areas travelled to help them. 
While the job has its challenges, Ms Stark says it's incredibly rewarding. It's so nice when you see somebody that you might have referred to hospital and you hear the next day that they're sitting up in bed and they're feeling much better and you've made a difference to their actual health outcomes and that's really great. And I think that that's the important thing to remember when we are on call and we're tired that we're actually out there making a difference. Prime is administered by St John, which declined to put anyone forward for an interview. Instead, it responded in a statement saying that on average, Prime responds to 312 incidents per month and the number is rising. Nearly a third of all incidents St John attends every year are in rural or remote areas. It costs about $1,500 per rural incident, which is more than three times the national average of $620. In cities, that figure starts at $400 per call-out. The Ministry of Health and ACC fund about 70% of Prime. The rest is covered through emergency ambulance part charges and fundraising. St John says that model just isn't sustainable and a case is being prepared to ask the government to increase funding to cover 95% of costs. I just take my hats off to them and to all first responders in rural areas because if we didn't have these services, we'd be lost. Among those hoping the money will be there to keep the service going at full strength is Otago Rural Support Trust coordinator, Pat McCauley. She says it's reassuring for rural communities to know that help is on the way when they dial 111. Her family has a special connection to emergency services. Her son is a rural firefighter and her daughter-in-law is a prime nurse. It does have a huge impact on their lives because our daughter-in-law, when she's on call, is on call 24-7. They've got two young children to make sure somebody comes to look after. They have a very good supportive team around them and when those alarms go, everything swings into action so they can both actually be out on the call but the babysitter's arrived and everything's fine at home. She says having local people helping out in a crisis makes a difference in areas with sporadic reception, significant travelling times to the nearest hospital and winding roads. I just shudder to think of it. I would hope that no further funding cuts are implemented because rural people deserve as much support as what's available in the urban areas and it would be just gut-wrencher if services were cut. Any part of it was cut. Fire and Emergency also responded to an interview request from Insight with a statement, saying it would be inappropriate to comment while its new operating model was out for consultation. The model aims to integrate rural and urban fire services, which includes about 40 organisations and more than 14,000 people in rural volunteer services over three years. The fire and emergency operating model is expected to be in place towards the end of the year. As for funding for Prime, rural GPs are expected to renew their call for more support at their national conference in a few months. That programme was written and presented by Tess Brunton. If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Insight explores if New Zealand's dry provinces can still thrive without big irrigation projects. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next time. Insight.